Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing the second half of the murder of Connie debate. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, Stop, Drop, and Roll over to part one. In part one, we went over the fact that Connie and Rick seemed to be living the perfect suburban life, but in reality, Connie was not happy. She wasn't happy because he was a man baby who spent more than he made and was constantly making up excuses to be less than half of the man she deserved. What she didn't know was that he was a cheating son of a bitch with a baby on the way. Rick's mistress, Samantha, was pregnant and he was spiraling. Samantha was constantly under the impression that Rick was in the process of getting a divorce and even had half of his stuff moved out, but 0% of that was true. Shortly after taking Connie on a trip to Vermont for the weekend, Rick called 911. When police showed up, they found Rick bloody in the kitchen with a folding chair half tied to his limbs and Connie shot to death in the basement. On the surface, it looked like Connie and Rick were the victims of a violent home invasion. In the last half of part one, we went over Rick's statement to police and even Rick couldn't keep up with the garbage flowing from his mouth. The more he talked, the less anything made sense and police were starting to wonder if there ever really was an intruder or if Rick had killed his wife and staged the entire thing. They were going to have to investigate without him though because after leaving the hospital on the day of the murder, Rick hired an attorney and never spoke to police again. So let's talk about everything that happened next. After Rick left the hospital, detectives spoke to medical staff and were told that none of Rick's wounds were life-threatening. He had two small cuts on his right thigh requiring three stitches total, three cuts on his left thigh requiring four stitches total, a burn on his calf a little bigger than the size of a quarter, a small cut on his outer left chest near his armpit requiring two stitches, and one small cut on the tip of his left middle finger that Rick couldn't seem to remember even getting. The hospital didn't even notice the cuts that were on his head. Medical staff stated that all of his injuries could have been caused by a household razor, and they all could have been self-inflicted. I also want to point out here that most of his injuries were on the left side of his body, which would be consistent with a right-handed person attempting to injure themselves. Rick had no bruises from those pressure point maneuvers and zero defensive wounds at all. Rick's aftercare included washing his boo-boos with soap and water and maybe applying a little ointment. With Rick done talking to police, it was time to ramp up this investigation and it took detectives no time at all to track down a man who'd actually run into Connie at the gym the morning she was killed. He said he'd gotten there at around 9 a.m. for the same class as Connie and she had told him that it had been canceled. Surveillance shows that Connie had gotten to the gym seven minutes earlier at 8.53. The man said Connie was happy and in a good mood that morning, and he and Connie and the man's wife talked for a few minutes as they walked back to their cars. Court records state that surveillance shows Connie leaving the gym parking lot at 9.08 a.m. Connie lives roughly seven minutes from the gym, depending on traffic, so the earliest she could have gotten home would have been around 9.15 a.m. 
Back at the house, detectives were combing through every piece of evidence they could get their hands on. Detectives took a closer look at the blood. The drops of blood at the top of the basement stairs only turned into smears when the hardwood turned to tile in the kitchen. They realized in that moment that Rick was full of shit. Rick had not crawled up the stairs in horror and agony. He had walked up them and walked all the way down the hall, dripping blood from his flesh wound from above. He'd only dropped to the floor for the last six feet of his journey towards his phone. But that's not even the weirdest part. According to these court documents, it looks like Rick may have been bleeding when he went into the basement at some point. Drops of blood lead from the kitchen and down the hall. There were smears on the stairwell wall and more drops leading into the basement's main room. There they found bloody shoe prints consistent with the shoes Rick was wearing at the hospital. Rick's blood drops continued into the main living area of the basement and didn't stop until they reached his tool bag behind the couch. There were drops of blood on the bag and a smear where it opens and closes, as if maybe someone's bloody hands opened the bag. Maybe the same bloody hands that had smeared the stairwell wall. There was smeared blood on Rick's blowtorch and a trail of blood leading from that to the burned paper and cardboard Rick claimed the intruder was collecting to start a fire. There was also blood on the handle of that box cutter and in that blood was the unmistakable detail of a fingerprint. The problem with that, if we're going to narrow it down to one, is that Rick claimed the intruder was wearing a yellow glove, but gloves don't leave fingerprints, and Rick never mentioned picking up that box cutter at any point in time, and certainly not after it was used on him. Hey guys, starting on a health and wellness journey is such a personal thing and it's never easy. I remember back in 2016 when I had 50 pounds to lose and the idea of going to the gym was so overwhelming. It was a new environment for me and I honestly had no idea what I was even supposed to do when I got there. There's no wrong way to start your journey and whether you're going all in or just easing into it, Allo Moves has the classes and flows that are made to move with you. Allo Moves is the on-demand streaming wellness platform from Allo Yoga. From yoga and fitness to meditation and self-care, it's my go-to for every step of my health and wellness journey. I'm all about small daily patterns that make a big difference and Allo Moves gets it. Whether I'm needing some alignment with guided meditation or I'm ready to kick some butt in cardio or hit classes, Allo Moves has what I need when I need it. And can we talk about the game changers for a second? Gua sha, dry brushing, face yoga, it's like they've got this wellness magic going on. With over 100 new classes every month, Allo Moves keeps me hooked and motivated. It's like a constant stream of fresh vibes for my wellness journey. I feel like I'm constantly trying to tackle my busy schedule, and I love how Allo Moves fits right in anytime that I need it to. All classes are on demand, and they're ready when I am. I tend to focus on their core and stretching videos to help with my climbing, and I've really seen an improvement in my stability and flexibility on the wall. No matter your path, it's time to make a move with Allo Moves. Get a free 30-day Allo Moves subscription by going to allomoves.com and use code BIGMAD. That's A-L-O-Moves.com, code BIGMAD in all caps. Allomoves.com, code BIGMAD, all caps.
Reading the blood, it seemed clear that Rick was bleeding and on the move in that basement, and in all of that blood, there was no void big enough for a chair to have ever been there. If he was bleeding while sitting in that folding chair, there should have been an area of missing blood, but police couldn't find one. There was also no pooling of blood that would indicate he'd bled in one place while bound to it. To further bolster the theory that Rick lied about being tied to that chair while he was cut and burned, Police looked at his removed clothing. No one will be shocked to learn that Rick's blood never ran down his thighs towards the back of his legs like it should have if he had been sitting. His blood did, however, trail off towards the wood room where Connie was killed. But didn't Rick make a million excuses as to why he claims to have never gone to check on Connie after the intruder left? In the wood room, there was a pool of blood found in a cardboard box underneath Connie's head, along with a few drops of blood east of where her body was found. There was a door in that room that led to a staircase which opened to the backyard, and Rick's wallet was found 26 feet away from that door in the backyard. As far as the condition of the wood room, it was cluttered but organized. There were no signs of a struggle at all. Even the revolver on the floor didn't have any dents or scratches on it to indicate it had been thrown or dropped. The unlocked safe it was kept in was found closed in that same room. Three spent shell casings were found, and if I'm understanding this report correctly, it looks like one bullet entered Connie's head, another went through her stomach, and a third looks like it might have gone through the floor joist above her. Rick never mentioned hearing three shots, only two. Moving on to the rest of the house, police went upstairs and took note of everything they saw. The kids' room and exercise room seemed normal and untouched, and the master bedroom was pretty run-of-the-mill as well. The bed wasn't made and there were kids' toys on the floor, but nothing screamed intruder was here. In fact, Connie's purse was found on the floor near the right side of her bed, and it looked like it hadn't been touched. Why would an intruder ignore a perfectly good purse left out in the open and instead head straight towards a closet? And I thought the intruder ran after Connie as soon as she got back from the gym. If that's the case, had Connie forgotten to take her purse with her before she left? I'm going to guess no, since a still from the surveillance footage at the gym shows her holding a black bag. Moving to the attached master closet, detectives found the other gun safe in the house hidden behind a cloth barrier on a top shelf. The keys to this safe were found in a nightstand. Beside the hidden safe was a duffel bag containing three boxes of ammo, but five bullets were missing. The brand of missing bullets were the same brand found in the gun on the wood room floor, as well as the remaining bullets still in the revolver. According to court documents, Rick claims to have purchased the gun for personal protection, but made no attempt to get it after an intruder supposedly ran after his wife. There were zero signs of a struggle in that closet, no sign of the manhandling Rick described, and nothing had been stolen. Not even the jewelry, which would have been visible to the naked eye through the clear plastic fronts of the closet drawers. We're still in the first 24 hours for anybody who's wondering, and if Rick planned on meeting up with Samantha that day, he was going to need to check her calendar because she had a meeting with detectives. Samantha told police that she had heard about today's incident, that Rick had been hurt and Connie had been killed. 
She said that she and Rick had known each other since middle school and had reconnected about a year ago after she got divorced. This is when police found out that Samantha, the never-married surrogate mistress co-parent, was indeed previously married. As for the pregnancy, Samantha had no problem answering directly that her pregnancy was completely unexpected. To be clear, she was no kind of surrogate because, according to her, Rick didn't plan on having any more children with Connie, and she certainly had no intentions of co-parenting her baby with her married boyfriend's wife. Furthermore, Connie could not have been amazing when it came to finding out about the baby, as Rick had claimed, because according to Samantha, she didn't even know. Rick told Samantha that he was planning to tell Connie after Christmas. To further solidify the fact that Connie was completely oblivious to the affair and pregnancy, detectives found Facebook messages that Samantha sent to her friends stating that Connie would flip her shit and eviscerate Rick in court if she ever did find out. If Rick's own words didn't screw him over enough, Samantha's were going to be the nail in his coffin. Rick had told detectives that he and Connie had gone on a date night to Vermont to see some snow, but Samantha told law enforcement that the trip was really to work on the divorce and figure out how they were going to get through the holidays. According to her, Rick was supposed to have served Connie with divorce papers in the previous couple of weeks, but wasn't sure if he had done it yet. Spoiler alert! He had not, though I'm still genuinely curious what papers were burnt in that basement. For the first time in this case, we jump forward a couple days to December 28th. On that day, court documents note that Rick attempted to make a claim on Connie's life insurance. While he was trying and failing, detectives were busy speaking to Rick's boss, the one he had emailed the morning of the murder about his alarm going off. According to court records, that email came in at 9.04 a.m., four minutes before Connie pulled out of the gym parking lot. It read, Our home alarm went off this morning, I think. And I think for procedural purposes, they sent out a police officer. I got to go back to the house and see what's going on. Rick should have been at work by 9 a.m. and was already four minutes late when he sent that email. If he was truly five minutes away from the house when it was sent, that would mean that he would have left at 8.59. If he left at 8.59, Connie wouldn't have even been home for him to have seen her looking for her spinning shoes or pulling out of the driveway. Rick's boss told police that about an hour and a half later, he got a call from one of Rick's relatives saying that there'd been a horrible accident and Connie had died. The family member didn't go into any more detail, but Rick did the following day, telling his boss it was definitely a home invasion and he wasn't involved. Rick told his boss that he couldn't tell him any more than that, though, since he had hired an attorney. He did, however, give his boss his brand new phone number because who doesn't change their number after their wife is killed? And rest assured, Rick made sure Samantha also knew his new number. Two days after speaking to Rick's boss, police tracked down a psychotherapist Connie had reached out to on the morning of her murder. At 8.58 a.m., while at the gym, Connie messaged the therapist on Facebook, telling her she hoped she was all set for the holidays and wondering if she still did hypnosis sessions because she had a lot going on that she'd like some help with. The therapist then spoke to Connie on the phone at 9.07 a.m. and reports that Connie said she was leaving the gym, which tracks, and that she'd like the soonest appointment possible. 
The therapist wasn't the only person Connie spoke to on the phone that morning because police quickly learned that she had also talked to a relative. That conversation took place at 9.18 a.m., with Connie telling them that she was on her way home from the gym and told the relative about the therapist appointment she had just booked. That call lasted a little over three minutes, ending at 9.22. Next on the list of people to speak to was the debate's next-door neighbor. According to court documents, she ran police through the rumor mill, which was that Rick had come home to grab his phone, not his laptop, and she found that interesting since he had backed his car into the driveway. She said she sees the family come and go all the time, and whenever they're running in to grab something real quick, they usually pull straight in. When they back in, it's usually because they plan to stay for a while. She also added that he had backed in at 8.20 a.m. after his kids got on the bus, so did Rick ever actually leave for work? Hold on to that tidbit because it's going to be important later. This podcast is sponsored by Embrace Pet Insurance. Hey guys, let's be honest, our pets are perfect and we don't deserve them. They're little floof angels who love us no matter what and we must protect them at all costs. Who else can chew our shoes and we still want to boop their snoot and give them treats? Whether you have a dog or a cat, Embrace Pet Insurance offers customized plans for your pet's exact needs. Did you know that every six seconds, a pet parent is handed an emergency vet bill of $1,000 or more? And with vet prices going up 33% from 2022 to 2023, now is the perfect time to get pet insurance. With Embrace Pet Insurance, you can visit any vet or emergency clinic. And if you insure multiple pets, you're eligible for a 10% multi-pet discount. Plus, Embrace has a 24-7 helpline and optional wellness rewards program to ensure you prioritize preventative care for your pet so you hopefully never even need to use Embrace in the first place. I know some people might think pet insurance is unnecessary or pricey, but it's more affordable compared to high emergency vet costs and it gives peace of mind. I worked at a vet clinic when I was younger and sometimes I would see those bills and cringe, hoping to everything they had pet insurance. So don't wait for the unexpected to happen. Join the massive community of pet owners who trust Embrace Pet Insurance to protect their pet. So head to EmbracePetInsurance.com slash BigMad and sign up for pet insurance today. That's EmbracePetInsurance.com slash BigMad. One last time, make sure you go to EmbracePetInsurance.com slash BigMad or else they won't know I sent you. Detectives went on to speak to several of Connie's relatives. One said that they'd seen Rick several times in the seven days since the murder, and he didn't seem to want to offer any information as to what happened that morning, just that he'd been trying to contact police for updates, but they weren't telling him anything. The problem with that is that it's not true. Not once since his initial interview had he ever contacted the department for any information regarding his wife's investigation. At a family gathering the day after the murder, a relative recalled Rick telling everyone, I didn't do it, which struck them as odd because they assumed he would never think they'd suspect him. He eventually ran Connie's family members through what he says happened, telling him that he headed off to work and, depending on the person he was talking to, Rick said he left after Connie left for the gym as well as before. And as you're well aware, both cannot be true. 
Rick told several people that he'd had to turn around, but his reason for pulling a Yui varied. One relative said Rick thought the cat had tripped the alarm, while another thought he'd forgotten his laptop or wallet. We've now heard laptop, phone, and wallet. Nonetheless, according to court records, Rick told them that when he got home, he heard a noise in the upstairs bedroom and found a masked burglar who sounded like Vin Diesel, who asked him for his credit cards, cash, and PIN numbers. Rick told one particular relative that when he heard Connie's car, he yelled for her to run because there was someone in the house. He said something about falling down the stairs, but never mentioned anything about a gunshot. Though, in a rundown of the morning with a different relative, he did mention the gunshot, saying it was so loud that he couldn't hear the intruder. Rick then went on to tell this relative about being tied to the chair and being cut with his own box cutter. He mentioned that at one point, he was finally able to get one arm free, but Rick always had one arm free. That was the arm he had reportedly used to turn the blowtorch around on the intruder. Though, in comments with a different family member, Rick stated that he did have one arm free, but claimed the intruder burned his shirt. And as far as we know, the only burn Rick had was to his calf. Court records also indicate that in a conversation with another relative, Rick said that after freeing himself from the basement, he'd gone to his car to try and activate the panic alarm. Rick stated the alarm didn't work and that he'd stayed there for a minute, but if that were true, you'd expect to see a trail of blood leading out of the house, then onto the driveway and in his car, but as far as I can tell, none of that was found. In the end, Rick apologized to Connie's family, telling them that he was sorry he didn't save her, but painted her as a hero, saying he thinks she went to the basement to try and get the gun to save him, something her family seriously doubts. According to their statements to detectives, Connie had worked on an ambulance when she was younger, and because of that, they believe Connie's first reaction to an intruder would have been to call 911 not to run into a small room in a dark corner of a basement in an attempt to feel around for a key, unlock a gun safe, and then unlock a gun lock all before the intruder got to her. One of her friends added that Connie was actually afraid of guns and hadn't even wanted them in the house in the first place. Connie's family didn't know about Rick's affair or Samantha's pregnancy until detectives spilled the beans. They doubt very seriously that Connie would have been okay with Rick having a baby with another woman. Her family also stated that she would have loved to have another child, but it was Rick who didn't want any more. Connie had no health issues that would have prevented her from getting pregnant again, contrary to Rick's cockamamie tales. But if she ever did go the surrogate route, she definitely wouldn't have done it with Samantha. Because according to family members, Rick's friendship with Samantha made Connie uncomfortable and for good reason. As for the current state of Rick and Connie's marriage, Connie's family had no idea that they were having any issues at all and could only recall two times in their entire marriage where things got rocky. One time back in 2012 when Connie noticed some money missing and found that Rick had taken out several credit cards without her knowledge, and a second time on Halloween of 2015 when Rick reportedly took off his clothes in front of party guests at their house. Connie told him it was inappropriate to get undressed in the middle of a party, to which Rick told her she was a bitch. 
Besides that eloquent representation of Rick's character, no one was aware of any other hiccups in the couple's marriage. Connie had kept it all to herself. After getting statements from Connie's family, it was time for detectives to talk to the debate's friends. Rick's friends all seemed to know he was unhappy in his marriage, but not everyone knew about the affair or his baby on the way. Some talked about the differences between the couple being the source of their issues, Rick being high energy and a lot, while Connie was type A and focused on the kids. Connie's friends knew about some of their struggles, but not all of them. A lot of her venting was about financial burdens brought on by Rick's spending and the stress of providing for her family. There was money disappearing again, and she had no idea where it was going, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that it was towards date nights with Samantha and those romantic motel rendezvous with dancers from Electric Blue. Court documents later noted five charges to Electric Blue and one cash withdrawal, totaling $1,753.75. He had three charges to the Motel 6 at a grand total of $177.07. The next thing we're going to talk about are the text messages between all parties involved. There's nowhere to dive but in, so let's start with October 3rd, which was two and a half months prior to the murder. Rick's friend texted him at 6.46 p.m. asking if he was finishing up a lappy at the Blue, i.e. he wanted to know if Rick was getting a lap dance at his favorite strip club. I found no response to that friend, but Rick did text Connie two and a half hours later. He said, I love you more than I did yesterday, but not more than I will tomorrow. The next two months were peppered with I love you texts between the two, Connie referring to him as sweet pea and openly showering him with verbal affection despite her inner frustrations. Rick, on the other hand, would match her tone and their text messages and then do a full 180 with friends telling them that Connie was being a bitch. Rick was looking worse by the second, and an analysis of his home security system, along with the data seized from that laptop he had claimed to have forgotten at home, was about to destroy every statement he had made. This is about to get timeline heavy, but hang in here with me. The first thing we need to talk about is where Rick's laptop was found and how the debate's particular home security system was set up. Rick's laptop was found propped up on the kitchen table, and his security system had seven designated zones. It looks like they had four door sensors. They were on the front door, the sliding door in the kitchen, the garage door into the kitchen, and the interior basement door in the hallway. There were three motion sensors, one in the hallway to the kitchen, one by the front door, and another in the second floor hallway, which wasn't very big at all. Rick had a security system fob on his keys that he could use to arm and disarm the system. The first motion registered on the morning of the murder was at 5.47 a.m. on the second floor. That would track for the time Rick said he did wake up that morning. Motion started registering downstairs at 6.06. At 6.21, Rick used his personal laptop to log into his personal email, and one minute later, he logged into his work email. There was no further activity on the laptop until 8.06 when Rick logged into Facebook. The activity ceased again between 8.07 and 8.25, 
which is probably when the kids were getting ready for school and getting onto the bus. But at 8.26, Rick logged back on and spent the next 16 minutes perusing Facebook, reading about Star Wars, and researching tattoo ideas, but he spelled tattoo wrong because he's an idiot. At 8.43 a.m., the door to the garage was opened and stayed open for one minute. It was opened again at 8.47, but closed immediately after like someone had walked through. Based on the time Connie got to the gym, this was likely her leaving the house. None of Rick's stories involved Connie leaving before he did, but that's the only possibility here because following the door to the garage closing, Rick's key fob was used to arm the security system as a whole, but in stay mode, which is a mode you would use if you wanted to arm the system while at home so you don't trip the motion sensors. After arming the system with his fob, Rick logged into the security system's website from his home IP address to try and disarm it from there, but it didn't work. Three minutes later at 8.50, Rick logged back into the system's website a second time to try and disarm it again, and this time it worked. After disarming the system, Rick used the system's website to fully arm it and not in stay mode this time. According to court records, the debate security system had only been fully armed two other times and both of those times were when Connie and Rick had gone away together on a weekend trip. Hey guys, did you know that socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. There are so many clothing brands out there, and it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. As of today, Bombas's one purchased equals one donated commitment has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a level of incredible that's hard to put into words, and it's all possible because of people like us just buying the Bombas they wear every day. And let me tell you, once you try Bombas, you'll know why that number is so impressive. The comfort geniuses at Bombas have worked their magic to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether that's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted for your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. These clothes are some of the most comfortable things I own. And Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee and like a really good one. If you ordered the wrong size, your dog chewed up your socks or a pair vanished into the abyss in the washing machine, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or even a replacement. If you're working on your fitness this year, Bombas' athletic socks are precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, the ever important blister defense, and they don't have that annoying toe seam. If you're just trying to relax, Bombas's cozy game is on another level. Their winter socks are toasty, warm, and pillowy, and don't even get me started on their slippers. They are my absolute favorite, and I will never own anything else. My feet are always cold, and I have a hard time finding slippers that actually keep them warm. It's like somehow slippers manage to insulate my coldness, but not Bombas. I don't know how they make these things, but my feet warm up so fast and stay warm without getting icky. My kids are obsessed with their long socks and their shirts are my husband's standard at this point. Once you try Bombas, it is hard to imagine anything else. 
Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash bigmad and use code bigmad for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash bigmad and use code bigmad at checkout. Rick claimed to have been away from the house when arming and disarming the system that morning, but his key fob told a different story. It only works within 500 feet of the house, which means that Rick had to have been within that radius at 8.47 a.m. The logins on his laptop after that, all registering to the home's IP address, meant that Rick never left the house that morning at all. The neighbor was right. Rick only backed in when he planned to stay. Rick then disarmed the system once again at 8.59 and then hopped back on his laptop to check Facebook, but only for a minute because at 9 a.m., the basement door was opened and closed. Four minutes later, at 9.04, Rick emailed his boss from his phone, claiming his alarm was going off and he needed to go home to check it out. The problem with that is that it never happened. The home's alarm was only activated once that day, and that's when Rick hit the panic button on his key fob after Connie was killed. It now makes a lot more sense as to why he claimed to have deleted those alerts. Connie was still at the gym at this point, but at 9.18, Rick went to the gym's website and checked the group exercise schedule, almost like he was checking to see when Connie might get home. After checking the class schedule, Rick spent 9.20 to 9.22 checking the Facebook pages of ESPN and the New York Giants. No doors opened after Rick disarmed it for the 11th time until 9.23 a.m. when the door from the garage to the kitchen opened. Based on Connie's three-minute phone call with a relative from 9.18 to 9.22, this alert was most likely Connie getting back home from the gym and walking into the kitchen. Rick claimed that as soon as Connie walked into the house, he yelled at her to run and she made a beeline to the basement. However, the data would disagree. The basement door didn't open again for another five minutes at 9.28. Four minutes later, the door to the garage was accessed again and the front door was opened, but Rick had never mentioned anything about opening the front door. This might sound like the point in time where chaos might have been happening, but let me assure you, Connie was very much alive and well. We know this because at 9.40 and 9.45, she used her own iPhone registering at the home's IP address to share two videos to her Facebook. At 9.46, she even DM'd a friend. Considering all of that, Connie could have only been killed in the 25 minutes between 9.46 a.m. when she sent that DM and 10.11 when Rick hit that panic alarm. In an attempt to break that 25 minutes down further, detectives took a look at Connie's Fitbit. The last movement it picked up was at 10.05 a.m. That's six minutes prior to Rick hitting the panic alarm and 13 minutes prior to him calling 911, though he had incorrectly dialed the three-digit number twice at 10.18. The first successful attempt was at 10.19. When it comes to the gun used to kill Connie, unfortunately, no prints were found, which isn't uncommon when it comes to guns, but there was DNA found. 
Rick's DNA, Connie's DNA, and an unknown profile, which was a mixture of two, possibly three unknown persons. Unfortunately, I don't know where on the gun Rick's DNA was found, but Connie's was found on the barrel of the gun, so the long shooty part for anyone unfamiliar with guns. You do not shoot a gun from the barrel. The unknown mixture was found on the cylinder lash or the release and loading area of the gun, which is something you would touch to put bullets into it or check to see if it was loaded, but again, you don't shoot a gun from that area. It had been purchased from a Cabela's, which means there's a solid chance it was previously owned by one or more people and likely handled by several employees at the store, so the mixture really isn't surprising at all. Next on the list for analysis was gunshot residue, or GSR. This shooting happened in a small, cluttered room in a basement, so anyone in that room or feet away, as Rick stated, would likely have GSR on them simply due to proximity. So let's talk about these results. When it comes to Connie, both of her hands tested positive for GSR. She was shot, she was in the room, so that makes sense. As for Rick, this is where it gets a little interesting. He tested positive for GSR on his shirt, but his hands tested negative. It's hard to believe his shirt could have been exposed to GSR during his wife's shooting, but somehow not his hands. That being said, this testing was done at 3.17 p.m. while Rick was being treated at the hospital, and he had an IV in his right hand. There's a possibility the hospital cleaned him up a bit before the GSR testing was done, but what are the chances that they cleaned both of his hands? The lack of GSR on his hands is almost more suspicious than the presence of it would have been, and I would be really curious to see if any of the sinks in the house were wet when police initially responded. We've talked a lot about the gun, but let's talk about that box cutter. We mentioned earlier that there were clear fingerprint details in the blood on it, which was odd since Rick never mentioned touching it and claimed the intruder was wearing gloves. Unfortunately, the fingerprint, while obviously a fingerprint, was too messy for any comparisons to be done. What was confirmed, however, was that the blood on it was his, meaning someone not wearing gloves had to have touched it after he bled on it. At this point, detectives were certain that there was no intruder and the man who had killed Connie was Rick. It took a while for them to compile every ounce of evidence they had, but they wanted to make sure that if and when they charged Rick, they were prepared for a trial. This case is extremely data-heavy, and on the off chance Rick invoked his right to a speedy trial, they needed to be ready. The wait was painfully long, but on April 4th of 2017, it finally happened. 40-year-old Rick was finally arrested and facing charges of murder, tampering with evidence, and making a false statement, though that is singular and it feels like it should be plural. His bond was set at $1 million, but somehow this dude managed to come up with the money. Within five days, Rick was bonded out of jail and remained a freeish man until his trial. I am happy to report, however, that he did not spend that time with his children, as the Independent states that Connie's sister took them in. Nearly five entire years later, in late February of 2022, Rick's trial finally began. While COVID did play a factor in the delay, that's still an absurd amount of time. According to the Hartford Current, the defense tried to sell the jury on the idea that Connie was fully aware of Rick's infidelity and impending infant. We know that's bullshit. 
The prosecution fired back, describing Rick as a ticking time bomb involved with two women. Samantha wanted him to get a divorce, but Rick was a piece of shit who wasn't capable of making adult decisions. He was in a downward spiral and the clock was ticking on all of his life choices blowing up in his face. The prosecution argued that instead of taking responsibility for the situation he had put himself and his family in, he decided to kill his wife and blame it on a Vin Diesel-sounding fake intruder. He then staged the scene as best he could before hitting the panic alarm and calling police. The prosecution walked the jury through the mountain of evidence they had put together, and this is when the media dubbed it the Fitbit trial. That's something that actually really bothered Connie's family because this wasn't about a Fitbit. This was about another loving mother, daughter, and friend killed by a man in an effort to avoid the consequences of his own actions. It seemed as though Rick figured he'd kill his wife, revel in the sympathy, get a payout from her life insurance, and start his brand new life with a mistress he cheated on with dancers and their new baby. As with every case, there's always a defense, and this one was as ridiculous as you'd assume. They argued that detectives were biased because they focused solely on Rick from the beginning. They claimed the authorities had already decided Rick was their suspect and tailored their investigation to make him look guilty. However, no one made Rick look more guilty than himself. It was his statements his security system, and his browsing history that screwed him. Thou shalt not blame thy detectives because you made it easy. The defense also urged the jury to question the reliability of the technology in this case, like Connie's Fitbit, and also raised doubts as to whether Rick would have even had the time to activate the panic alarm and stage the crime scene. But all Rick had that morning was time. Like a full-blooded dumbass, Rick took the stand in his own defense, maintaining his innocence. He reiterated that the intruder was responsible for Connie's death, not him, explaining that in December of 2015, he found himself in love with two women and didn't want to lose either of them, and that might actually be the most offensive thing he has said to date. Rick admitted to lying to police about his affair, but said he was telling the truth when he said Connie knew about Samantha and the baby. He seemed to be under the impression that he could add this jury to the list of people he had successfully gaslit, but Rick had fucketh around and he was about to findeth out. On May 10th, after deliberating for just a few hours, the jury found Rick guilty on all charges. The Hartford Current reports that Connie's 84-year-old mom walked out of the courtroom, lifted her hands up, and smiled towards the sky. Following the verdict, the prosecution stated that while technology was key to this investigation, they wanted the public to remember that, in the end, this was another case of domestic violence. And though much progress has been made in recent years to support victims and survivors and to hold abusers accountable, these domestic violence homicides are still happening, so we must continue to work together to end domestic violence. A spokesperson for Connie's family further told the media the trial was not about Fitbit. The trial was about the cold-blooded planned murder of Connie Margata debate. There will be no closure for the Margata family, but there is finally justice for Connie.
On August 18th, Rick's sentencing hearing was held. The CT Insider reported that multiple friends and members of Connie's family gave victim impact statements. All of them spoke about how Connie's murder left a gaping hole in their lives, traumatizing them and the debate's two children. When Rick was asked if he had to say anything, he again maintained his innocence, saying, I'm here before you as an innocent man. I will never stop fighting for justice for my wife, Connie, who I think about every single day. It was the judge's turn to talk now, and piecing together different reports by various sources like the Hartford Current and The Independent, the judge stated that Connie's murder was a brutal, calculated, and incomprehensible act carried out by the man who vowed to love and protect her. The judge addressed Connie's family, saying, The world is truly a lesser place without Connie in it. I can't replace Connie in your lives. If I could order that, I would certainly do it. The judge then did the only thing she could do and sentenced Rick to 60 years for the murder, five years for tampering with evidence, and another year for making a false statement to police. Unfortunately, all of his sentences will run concurrently as opposed to one after the other. The chances of Rick being alive when he's released are slim to none, but it still will never feel like enough. Rick wasted no time, and on September 26th, he appealed his convictions and sentences. While his appeal is still pending, Rick is spending his free time in the McDougal Walker prison in Suffield, Connecticut. His maximum release date is May 2nd of 2087, when he'll be the ripe old age of 110 years old. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Connie's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there today at noon Eastern, where you go live with me and talk about today's case and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just two whole dollars a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case that you would like to hear covered, please share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of this episode, and it is time to share a view that made my entire day. This one is from 21 Baby Crazy. Uh, I haven't read it yet, so here we go. It says, oh my, I cannot believe that I am just now doing this because Heather Ashley feels like a member of my family, even though I've never met her. I've been listening for so long now, I can't remember my life without her, nor would I want to. Love you, bestie. If you want to listen to a true crime podcast where the host believes in truth, justice, and puts her victims first, then you have come to the right place. Heather Ashley is exactly who I'd want in my corner, talking about me if I was ever in the shoes of a lot of the victims she covers. It's obvious she cares from the second you start listening, and you always walk away caring as much as she does because of her passion. Oh, not to mention, she has this incredible ability to make you feel like you're her closest friend as you listen. I feel so blessed to know her, and if you're a lover of true crime, you're crazy not to add this podcast to your playlist. Thank you, Heather, for your big heart and sharing it with the rest of us. Love you. I love you. I think we really are besties. I think we really are family. Honestly, we're all family here. I feel like we, I don't know what it is about at the vibe of the podcast. We found our people, our people. Why did I say it twice? Our people are here. Maybe that was what I was going to say. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I love you guys. You're the best. All right. If you've made it this far, I've sat back for a minute because I need to think about what I'm going to say for this hot take because it's brought to you by We Hate Rick.
We hate Rick so much. So not only, so we'll start from the beginning. So I had my phone up because I was reading that. Cool. You didn't need to know that. Anywho, from the beginning, we knew that Rick thought about like watching his children as babysitting. So shit list, right? You're the worst. As a man, you are never babysitting your children. You are parenting them, which is something that you signed up to do when you decided to have them. A woman is never babysitting her children, nor is a man. You have responsibility. So this dude would act like he was working late at night, and then he would go meet up with his mistress, Samantha. And depending on who the fuck you talk to, they've been together forever and never. Nonetheless, look, Samantha, that was some fucked up shit. Like, don't touch a married man's woman. Mm -mm. Nope. And like, what do you think he's going to do with you? Obviously, like he's cheating on you. I wonder how she felt when she found out he was cheating on you with dancers. I bet it felt really fucking hard. I bet it felt like he was cheating on you. Like Connie would have felt like if she found out about fucking you, Samantha. Which is not her name, but that's what we're going to call it. She got herself into a big fucking mess with this dude. And now she just has to like live her life knowing that she's Samantha. And that baby has to grow up. I hope he doesn't fucking know who his dad is because what a freaking life shit dude what a mess nonetheless she's like oh my gosh he's gonna be getting a divorce no he's not he's a weenie he loves connie's money that's what he loved he loved having a mommy a mommy to take care of his kids a mommy to take care of him a mommy to make him feel like a grown-up but he wanted to be a little fucking frat boy and fuck around with samantha and dancers He wanted to be a frat child and he wanted to be married because his friends were more mature. Although that one friend is like, are you getting a lappy? Like, dude, grow up. How old are we? Fucking dingbat. Anywho, Connie obviously did not know about this affair. She did not know about the baby on the way. And any other thing said is bullshit. Can you imagine the mental gymnastics you would have to do to be like, okay, how am I going to explain this to cops? Okay, so so what happened was, is actually, 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 here we go. I got it. I got it, cops. Listen, listen, listen. Listen, Linda. So what happened was, is she couldn't have any more kids. Please don't talk to her family to verify this information. And so, like, what happened was, is, is I have this friend. We have this friend. It's actually our friend. It's not just my friend from high school. It's our friend. Don't fact check that either. Um, And so Connie was like, I really want a baby, but I can't have any babies. And so, like, maybe we could have Samantha be the surrogate. And I was like, faux show. Right. So I'm going to knock her up because like I love to spend money, but not on our procreation. And I don't want you to have to foot that bill because you foot all my other bills, um, Connie. And so like what I'm going to do is I'm going to knock her up by doing it with her. I'm going to have sex. You good with that? And she was like, you know, I really don't love cheating. But since it's for our baby, that won't be mine. Sure. And he was like, oh, my gosh. See, like it was like totally sort of Connie's idea. And she was like totally so amazing about finding out that like she was pregnant like what a world i'm living in a utopia um but then shit hit the fan because he was like that's when like it turned into a soap opera bitch you created the soap opera you wrote the script you were the lead actor actors you played many people and you were the villain as well so anyway he's like oh my gosh she's super pregnant and like what we're gonna do is we're gonna raise the baby together but like don't fact check that because i'm pretty sure that she didn't tell anybody because like I mean, why would she? Like, she just had a baby on the way and she was going to three-parent one of her children together. Can you imagine explaining that to your children, like your existing children? Like, I'm not shaming anybody who has like really blended, different lifestyles. This is not it. This was a murderous, so let's keep it here. Um. So anywho, the police were like, this doesn't sound true. 
And they were like, first, I'm going to fact check you, Rick. And he's like, if you're going to accuse me, I'm going to hire an attorney. Bitch, you needed an attorney the second you woke up this morning. Do not let us stop you. So we got an attorney and it didn't really help because like when you're super fucking guilty, you're super fucking guilty. And you can maybe get off of murder being guilty if your attorney is like a fucking wizard and the prosecution does a shit job. But anyway, that wasn't the case. Uh, These cops and detectives were fucking wizards and the prosecution was a fucking wizard. And the jury. So they had said they put together a timeline and I have like this whole timeline I can post in the highlight and Facebook group if you guys want it, where I took down timelines versus Rick's statements versus data that was pulled versus other people's statements. And you can see how like Rick's an idiot. Fucking idiot. So anywho, the jury, I maybe it was Dateline. I'm not sure who it was. I just read it. I didn't watch it. Um, they had said that it was pretty easy for them to come to the conclusion of guilt after they put together their own timeline. They put together everything they could find. If, if there was a timestamp, they had it. They put it on this huge, I think it was like a whiteboard. And when they looked at that, there was no way anything happened the way Rick said it did. And if you believe Rick, you believe that there was an intruder. If you don't believe Rick, like he killed Connie. I mean, what's the other option? He's appealing this for what? What are you going to tell a new fucking jury if for whatever reason hell opens up and you get your sentence overturned or your conviction overturned? What are you going to tell the jury? You're going to try and convince them again that Connie knew Samantha was pregnant? You're going to tell them again that there was an intruder upstairs? And the last time motion registered, mm, I have the timeline, let me find it. Oh, shit, it's not on this one. I think it was at 9.34 a.m. And my brain's pretty good at remembering numbers. I want to see them. So I think it was 9.34 a.m. The motion sensor upstairs showed the last um, motion, I believe, at 9.34 a.m. Rick never mentioned going back upstairs or anyone else going back upstairs. We know that Connie was alive and well as late as 9.46. And so that's like 13 minutes later. What happened in 13 minutes in that house that caused no sign of a fucking struggle if there was an intruder up there and he was just off at the timeline of which things happened and the intruder really ran down at 934? And then what? You guys had coffee and bagels? No. And the void of there's no void in the basement. Blood dripping, blah, blah, blah. It's a it's a it's a compact basement. You would expect if he was on that folding chair, which he had already mentioned, wasn't normally there. I wonder if all of the back and fucking forth in the freaking basement and garage, basement and garage, basement and garage and arming and disarming for what the fuck ever reason. And when he fully armed it for like nine minutes, nothing went off, even though he was inside the house, which is really interesting. Wonder why he did that. I can't explain what happened in the house. Only Rick can. But what he said happened definitely did not. So anywho, back to the void or the lack of a void in the basement. If there was a chair down there and he was bleeding and he was fucking tied to a chair, you would expect there to be blood pooling like it had under his hand when he was found um, on the kitchen floor. But that didn't exist down in the basement. And there was also no clear space. Like if I lay down in the snow, there's a heather shaped hole in the snow where my body has covered whatever. If you put a chair down in a basement and say you spray paint or you bleed, there is not going to be blood under the chair because it's, because it's blocking. It's blocking everything. That void was absent. So 
whatever. Rick's a fucking idiot. He's a piece of shit. He deserves to be in jail. And this is why this podcast has to be listed as explicit on Apple. (laughs) All right. I love you guys. I'll talk to you next week. Oh, we're doing a listener. You guys know I planned on doing a listener write an episode in December, but there was a case that really needed the coverage. The family was trying so hard to get people to pick it up. And so I took it on. But two hours after I recorded it, gosh, I don't want to call it a break. There was a huge update in the case. It would not have made it appropriate for me to release what was intended to be released. So we did have to release an, an old Patreon. So shout out to Patreon for being down with that. That was my Christmas gift to you guys, except for Patreon. I'm really sorry. I hate doing that to you guys, but it was a weird pickle. And in the business of ethics, like I just couldn't, I'm never going to publish something I can't live with publishing when it's not appropriate given new information. Moving along, I am going to do a listener write-in episode this month as a bonus episode. So if you have something you want me to talk about, whether it's a topic, whether it's something going on in your personal life, this is our time to be besties. Shoot me an email at bigmadtruecrime at gmail.com if you have a Q&A question, if there's a topic you want me to discuss, or if there's a situation you want my unqualified advice on, like, I said, we're besties here. Am I the asshole style? For sure. Whatever. This is just going to be bonus episodes every now and then. They're a little bit lighter, a bit of a break, and we can get to know each other and interact and all that stuff. So I love you guys and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye.